Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Dr. Melek Fırat Altay, a musician and a neuroscientist. I will be your host today, and we will be talking to Professor Hella Porzdam about her new book, Science as a Cultural Human Right, published by University of Pennsylvania Press in 2022. Hella Porzdam is a professor of law and humanities at the University of Copenhagen. Her research interests are primarily in the field of transatlantic studies and the intersection between law and humanities. In her publications, she has concerned herself with the role of law in American history and culture and with copyright from a transatlantic perspective. Her latest publications include the monograph From Civil to Human Rights and the recent collection The Right to Science, Then and Now of which she was the co-editor together with her son, Sebastian Porzdam-Mann. Hele, welcome. How are you today? Good, thank you. So, uh, let's start uh, with talking about you. Can you tell us about yourself? How did you end up being a professor of law? Uh, I am a professor of history and um, cultural rights. So that means I spend half my time in the history department where I teach American studies. That's my my background is in American studies. Uh, and then I, I spend the other part of my time in the law school teaching uh, human rights. So I started out in actually in English and American studies. Um, and um, I did a master's degree at Copenhagen, the University of Copenhagen, where I'm presently at. Uh, and then I went to Yale to do um, um, to do a PhD in American studies. And actually, it was a professor we had at the University of Copenhagen who was uh, an American himself, who said to me, because my original plan was just to, to study English in the US, and he said, why don't you study American studies since you'll be going to the States anyhow? And so I did, and I was only going to stay for one year, but it very quickly hit me that this was a wonderful place to be. So I ended up doing a, a, my PhD in law. And what interested me, the reason why I became interested in, in law is that um, I, I quickly noticed the difference between my own Denmark, you know, and, and the U.S. in terms of the role that law plays, that, that in the American context, law seems to be a common discourse in a totally otherwise called multicultural setting where no one agrees on anything. So that got me interested in law. Why did law play such a role in the U.S.? Why is it that court cases are so important? Why do so many discussions start or end in a court of law. And that then led me to human rights that I think are somewhat similar in the sense that that human rights also forms a common discourse in a totally multicultural international setting. And how did you come to writing science as a cultural human right? Was it also because of COVID you found some extra time during, during the lockdowns or for any other interest? 
I had a, a grant from the Danish Carlsberg Foundation, which paid my salary for a full year so that I could concentrate 100% on writing this book. And I'm very grateful for that. And what really got me interested in it also was the role of, of science in the academy in an age that where some have, have talked about science-related populism, uh, which I think is very, very important to discuss. Normally, population, po populism is targeted uh, to, you know, against um, politicians. But there is a variation that some call science-related populism that is targeted specifically at members of the academy. Um, and I really think for me, climate change means uh, everything. We, we need science and we need the public to understand that we're fellow stakeholders here. We shouldn't fight with each other. We need each other for this. Otherwise, nothing good is going to come and we, we won't uh, solve uh, climate change. If you were to summarize uh, this work in a nutshell, how would you? Um, science is a cultural human right, um, concerns um, the little known and the very underexplored right that everybody has. Um, the wording in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights from 1948 is that everybody has the right to share in scientific advancement and its benefits. And um, the potential at a time where people around the world increasingly rely on science and technology, but where the value of science is under attack and people are actually very afraid of dual use science. So that's what the book is about. Right. And before we get to the, 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 the topic of right to science, could you tell us a little bit about uh, the, the story behind Flora Danica, please? Yes. Flora Danica was a Danish Enlightenment project, which was published between 1761 and 1883, so a fairly long period. And it was um, one of the largest botanical works, um, Herbaria, ever published, and it covered the entire wild flora of the double monarchy of de then Denmark-Norway, um, Schleswig and Holstein, the 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 um, the northern part of Germany, and the North Atlantic dependencies, which were the Faroe Islands, Iceland, and Greenland. And the intention behind it was it was it was funded by uh, successive Danish kings, and the intention was util utilitarian in, in two different ways. First, the idea was to find out what kinds of plants were actually available that could be practically used in agriculture, say, in medicine, so as to uh, boost the Danish economy. And second, and this is, is more interesting for me in the context of my monograph, Science as a Cultural Human Right, the hope uh, of its various editors that um, you could make available to people within the Danish realm uh, very valuable knowledge about the uses of plants and herbs. If you lived out in the middle of nowhere, you wouldn't have access to, uh, to a medical doctor, for example. So learning about herbs would be very, very useful. And also for agricultural purposes, what use, what plants could be used. So Flordanic has an early example of a work that actually involved both citizen science and science diplomacy. In the sense, citizen science, that um, copies of the herbarium w were given to 
bishops around the countryside to be given or not be given to, but be, to be made available for lay people to learn something, to, to, to read about plants and herbs, uh, provided that they would give information about plants they found back to Copenhagen, back to the editors of the Flor de So it really is an early example of citizen science. And science diplomacy in the sense that uh, the kings used it as a project to boast about, you know, how good we were in Denmark to be able to to do this kind of thing. So finished, once it was finished, um, copies were sent to other kings and members of the nobility around Europe and to learned societies and to people like Linnaeus in, in Sweden. So it became part of Danish uh, science diplomacy. And when I did research for my book, I found that um, the Flora Danica offers insights into how human knowledge and creativity are advanced that could be quite useful for what I wanted to do, and that I could somehow use its history to illustrate, to reflect on various aspects that were actually very um, pertinent to the right to science. So I ended up having various aspects of Flora Danica bookend thematic uh, explorations of the right to science to to have the work, the herbarium, form a backdrop to or a narrative arc, if you will, for my argument that this uh, particular human, human right has special relevance today because of its potential when it is used responsibly to bolster the freedom of science and culture for the benefit of scientists themselves, but just as much for the public and society in general. So... You use uh, Flora Danica as a um, really like a case study, uh, don't you, to, to to explore the concepts of right to science and citizen science. So let's uh, go to the basics of this. Um, could you tell us about the aspects that the right to science uh, entail? Um, why is it a human right or why is it a right to culture? Yeah, if we take the uh, what it entails first, then it is, uh, I, I mentioned before Article 27 of the Universal Declaration, that is where it is outlined. It goes all the way back to the founding human rights instruments, um, especially the, 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 the Universal Declaration of Human Rights from 1948. And there in Article 27, it is mentioned uh, but the thing about the Universal Declaration is that it's not a legally binding instrument. It's a declaration. So it has no force of law in that respect. Sometimes scholars say today that it has become part of, of so-called customary law and, and in that way has become binding on everyone. But, but uh, as a point of departure, it's a declaration and not legally binding. So the intention within the UN was to have one document drawn up afterwards uh, that would make all the rights outlined in the Universal Declaration legally binding on ratifying states. But they couldn't agree what else is new within the UN. Um, so also um, there was a Cold War brewing. There was decolonization and all kinds of geopolitical questions popping up. So we didn't get one uh, instrument, but two that made um, the rights outlined in the Universal Declaration legally binding. Uh, one of them is called, uh, they're called covenants. Um, it's a, a wonderful old word. So we have the International Covenant for Civil and Political Rights, and we have the International Covenant for Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. 
And it was very unfortunate that they split up uh, human rights in that way, because forever since uh, we have all been discussing what the core of human rights are. Are civil and political rights the core of human rights? Are they more important than economic, social and cultural rights? Or is it just the other way around? So uh, Article 15 of the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights is the one that those of us who are interested in the right to science especially work with, because that's the one that made parts of Article 27 of the Universal Declaration legally binding on ratifying states. And it has four different parts. The, the first part of those four outlines the right itself, and then the other three concern the, the obligations that states have to uh, enable this, the, 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 to, to make sure that their citizens have the right to science. Um, it was very important um, between the Universal Declaration and those two international covenants. Um, the, the, the drafters talked very much about the importance of not just having rights, but also making sure that states' parties would have obligations to carry out these rights for the benefit of their, uh, of their people. So the wording of Article 15 is very close to that of the Universal Declaration. What it says in that first part of Article 15 is that everybody has the right to enjoy the benefits of scientific progress and its applications. So what, is, what does that mean, to have the benefits of science? Well, um, it states that the, 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 the benefits of science kind of First of all, uh, not first of all, but first um, are about the material results of scientific research. We're talking about medicines, vaccination, technology. Um, secondly, benefits refer to the scientific knowledge and information that come out of scientific activity. So not just the material results, but also knowledge and information in a more immaterial way. Thirdly, um, the benefits of science refer to the role of science in forming critical and responsible citizens who are able to participate fully in a democratic society, uh, so the formation of democratic citizens. And fourthly, um, it refers to evidence-based decision-making processes in a democratic society. Those are normally the four things that we associate with the wording, the benefits of science. And then what are the state's obligations then? Well, th these are outlined in Article 15, 2 to 4, and they are the steps that have to be taken by states' parties. And 15, 2 concerns um, um, the steps that are necessary for the conservation, the development, and the diffusion of science and culture. And 15.3 is about respect for that, that state states have an obligation to respect the freedom that is indispensable for scientific research and creative activity. And then the fourth part concerns um, the state obligation to recognize the benefits of international contacts and cooperation in the scientific and cultural fields. And then you ask me why a human right and why a right to culture? Well, we normally say that um, the core of cult cultural human rights are four. There are four core rights. There's the, uh, the right to education. There's the right to participate in cultural life. Uh, 
and there's um, the right to um, what we abbreviate to the the right to science, the right to to benefit from scientific progress and its or advancements and its products, and fourthly, its authors' rights. So the right to education, the rights to culture and science, and authors' rights. And the drafters thought that these rights were necessary, were important because they were necessary for forming the whole human personality. And the intention behind them was to further human creativity and human learning. So I would argue, and I do in 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 um, culture in in science as a cultural human right, that human rights are not perfect. We've had many many points of criticism raised over the years, but they are. Uh, a global, they form a global ethical discourse or language, perhaps the only one that we currently have. So why not use it? And the thing about um, when, when we view science and culture through the lens of, of as human rights, um, then we are talking not just about a set of legal rules, but also a set of ethical principles. Principles such as universality, non-discrimination, dignity, fairness, equality, respect, and independence. So it's kind of a package deal. These are, human rights are a set of legal principles, but very much also a set of ethical principles. Another concept that you explore uh, um, in, in your work is is the, the, the um, intellectual property rights. So how does it fit with, with the, um, uh, within the context of the right to science? And isn't there a contradiction between intellectual property rights and accessibility of knowledge? Absolutely. Um, from a cultural rights, um, human rights perspective, cultural human rights perspective, IP rights, intellectual property rights, such as um, copyright, patents, um, are not human rights. They are private rights that give a temporary monopoly for someone uh, for a number of years. Um, and Farida Shahid, who was the first UN special rapporteur in the field of cultural rights um, from 2019 to, to 2009 to 15. Um, she put it in one of her reports, and I quote her here, the rights of authors protected by human rights instruments are not to be equated with intellectual property rights. So what we have mentioned in Article 15.1c and I, uh, is the right that everybody has to benefit from the, that this is the actual wording now of, from, the, uh, into, from the, uh, the Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, that everybody has the right to, and I quote, to benefit from the protection of the moral and material interests resulting from any scientific, literary or artistic production of which he is the author, end of quote. So this is what we call author's rights. And author's rights are different from IP rights. They're not a monopoly that you have for just a period of time. They are personal rights that never go away. And they, they are rights that, that have to do with you as a person uh, and with, um, with the integrity of the work, such as if you quote, some, you have the right to be quoted. Um, for example, if somebody quotes from you, then you have the right to be referred to. Um, so it's integrity, right? These are integrity rights. And to a certain extent, also, you have the right to control what happens to your work afterwards. This is very different from intellectual property rights. 
they privatize. It's a monopoly, uh, which means that others have to pay to use your product. product. And intellectual property um, is protected by WIPO, the World Intellectual Property Organization, which is a part of the WTO, the World Trade Organization. And here, the, the, the language is one of private property rights. Whereas in the rest of the UN system, human rights um, are, are, are uh, public goods, public international goods um, that should be publicly available. So um, within the UN system, we have these two very different venues and discourses, a public goods discourse within most of the UN, and then for WIPO and the WTO, a property rights discourse. And they don't kind of speak together. Um, and another problem is that UN instruments aren't consistent either. The Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples from 2007, uh, for example, talks about IP rights, and so does the European Charter of Fundamental Rights. But the rest of the UN documents don't, and they would adhere to um, to uh, Farida Shahid saying that um, authors' rights are different from IP rights. So, and in fact, from a cultural human rights perspective, the hope is that an author's rights approach in combination with a public goods approach can be used to curtail the worst, to prevent the worst commercialization of culture and science. So um, there is there is sometimes a, a, a contradiction between IP rights and accessibility of knowledge because we talk about privatized IP rights that are taken out of the of their public uh, domain and people have to pay to use it and accessibility of, of knowledge which is a public good there can be reasons for limiting knowledge sometimes uh, privacy issues for example national security um, issues but human rights are public goods that should be available to everyone that's somehow somehow the starting point and let's talk about uh, dissemination of science. You mentioned uh, citizen science, for example. Um, what's the significance of, of, of this? Um, why should we be concerned about dissemination of science, for example? The drafters were very um, aware um, and, and this, this concerns both the drafters of the Universal Declaration and those of the International Covenant on economic, social, and cultural rights. They were very aware of the importance of scientific knowledge being translated. That's the dissemination means, means being translated into normal language so that the public will understand. Because there is no right to science unless people actually understand what um, the, the, the things have to be explained, curated in such a way that people understand. Otherwise, they have no right to science. So this is a very, very important part of Article 15. Um, in, in human rights lingo, we talk about various components of this. Um, the general comment uh, number 25 on science that came in 2020 mentions five components. Uh, these general comments are um, the most authoritative soft law we have within the human rights system. Each of the big UN convention, conventions have monetary, monitoring bodies that kind of keep an eye on, do states live up to what they have ratified? Do they do what they're supposed to do? 
And these, uh, these um, monitoring bodies consist of experts, typically 18 experts, and the one that is uh, of importance in, in our context here is what's called the Committee on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. And these committees, uh, monitoring bodies, issue so-called general comments on um, to, to clarify certain aspects of their particular convention um, and to say what, what does this or that mean for the benefit of the public and for states as well. What are the obligations that states have vis-a-vis -vis these, uh, these um, particular rights? And... Um, the first of the components that are mentioned in the general comment uh, number 25 on science, which particularly uh, concerns um, Article 15 of the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights on the Right to Science. The first of these elements is availability, and it refers to the obligation that state parties have to make certain, to make sure that scientific progress is actually taking place and that the what whatever uh, scientific knowledge and products come out of this process that they are actually widely disseminated accessibility is the second element and it obliges state parties to eliminate barriers to the participation in scientific progress and its applications. And this includes things such as furthering the access of marginalized popula populations to scientific education, providing information on the benefits, but also the risks that science and technology can generate. Um, it concerns adequate resources that have to be directed toward making quality science, which is the third element, meaning, and here I quote from the comment, meaning, quote, the most advanced, up-to-date, and generally accepted and verifiable science available at the time, according to the standards generally accepted by the scientific community, unquote, to make that quality science accessible for everybody without discrimination. The fourth element is then acceptability of the dissemination of scientific results that state parties are responsible for these results being explained in a way that helps further their acceptance to various cultural and social groups without compromising their quality. This relates to the tailoring of scientific education and scientific products to groups with special needs, for example, uh, but also to the incorporation of ethical standards to, to make sure that the integrity of scientific um, research is upheld and that there's respect for human dignity, one of the most important principles behind human rights. And then the fifth and last element concerns the freedom indispensable for scientific research and creative activity, which is specifically laid out in Article 15.3 of the Covenant. Uh, it kind of makes up the fifth and final element. So there are these, these various elements to the kinds of obligations that states have. Could you talk a little further about citizen science? Um, Obviously, there are several positive implications to it, but um, also it has been criticized for um, negative implications as well, such as the, the uh, lack of maintenance of quality control um, or scientific integrity. What do you think about this? Well, first and foremost, um, the, from a human rights perspective, um, the, the public has the right to participate in science in two different ways. Um, 
an, an active participation in the very creation of science itself. And here you can think of, of um, uh, crowdsourcing, for example, or, or uh, citizen science in the sense of gathering information for scientists. If, if say, one example would be scientists being interested in, in butterflies around the world, to have people collect that information for them. That's, uh, that's um, citizen science, one, one part of citizen science that can benefit science a lot. Uh, and then there's the other part of it, which concerns the active participation in science policymaking. Um, that it's as it, it that it kind of belongs to you as part of modern democracies. That as a citizen, you have the right to participate in in science, um, in science and policy making. Uh, and from a human rights perspective, both are important. Um, and the idea is also that uh, citizen involvement can help anticipate dual use science. You know, science that could be used for good things, but also for bad things. Uh, so that's the rationale behind this. But there is a potential problem here with scientific freedom, for example. Um, if, if, say, we go all the way and we let citizen science scientists really decide or put pressure on politicians um, by saying, we say, in my case, the Danish population that pay my salary. We, the Danish population, would like Danish, Danish politicians to support research into this or that area. Then we, are, we end up talking about strategic uh, research funding that kind of violates my personal scientific freedom. Should, the, the problem is, should the Danish population be able to tell me what to do my, my scientific, um, what, what to do my, my scholarship on? I don't think so. I would have problems with that. So this actually uh, links very well to the concept of scientific freedom, actually. Um, so where do we draw the line? So who would benefit from scientific freedom? So if the um, public is to participate in the formation of science policy, um, how much can the scientists decide, for example? Um, or vice versa, if it is only the scientists to decide on what to research, uh, what are the measures to, to prevent dual use? Yeah, that's a big, uh, big question. And, and maybe a way to start is to talk about, um, from a human rights perspective, scientific freedom is especially highlighted as it has, it has a, its own part of Article 15, which is Article 15.3. And, and scientific freedom, academic freedom, um, a distant cousin, uh, and, this, and, and academic freedom is where it all started. Um, gives an extraordinary freedom to, I mean, what, what other professions have such freedom? So um, historically, uh, it has been justified uh, in three different ways, academic and scientific freedom. Um, first of all, that um, this is something that we know from the, the drafters of the international human rights documents also, that they used what we would call an epistemological argument, saying that this was about the search for truth and new knowledge, and that 
new knowledge will result in scientific progress and will correct the mistakes of others. And um, major scholarly breakthroughs are not going to happen without the freedom to experiment with new techniques and methods and approaches. And it is really impossible to predict at any given time which ones are going to prevail and which ones are going to lead to new knowledge. So science needs to be free because scientists, scholars are trying as far as possible to uh, to to uh, develop knowledge and to find the truth. Now, a second argument that has been used for why this is necessary is that true democracy is simply not possible and not possible for very long if there is no academic freedom. It's necessary for education and also thereby for the, for educating the, the democratic citizen. And, and uh, an unbiased understanding of evidence-based and evidence-informed knowledge is absolutely needed for the general population to be able to judge politically charged topics on which they will have to vote. So not only are, should science, should there be scientific and academic freedom because scientists supposedly are, are working to find the truth for the general common good, but this is also necessary for democracy. And then the last, um, the last um, uh, um, way of justifying this has been to say that it's, it's required by international human rights law. Um, there's some protection in the UN system in the other covenant than the one we're talking about here, the one on civil and political rights. Article 18, for example, on freedom of thought, conscience and religion can promote and protect academic freedom. And then there's the one, the covenant, our covenant, so to speak, in which Articles 14, 13 and 14 concern the right to education and scientific and artistic freedom directly in, in Article 15, the one that we have been talking about here. So they expressly promote rights that are at the center of academic freedom. There's also a bit of protection in the European system. The European Convention on Human Rights has an article, Article 9 on freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. And Article 13 of the European Charter of Fundamental Rights directly mentions that the arts and scientific research, research shall be free of constraint and academic freedom shall be respected. So there is some protection for this uh, in um, international human rights law. Now, who benefits from scientific freedom? Scientists themselves, obviously, but also I would say the public and society in general. Uh, David Kay, who was um, UN Special Rapporteur on the promotion and protection of the right to freedom of opinion and expression, wrote a very interesting report in 2020 uh, on this issue where he said, for example, and I quote him, without academic freedom, societies lose one of the essential elements of democratic self-governance, the capacity for self-reflection, for knowledge generation, and for a constant search for improvements of people's lives and social conditions. So scientific freedom is, is important for scientists themselves, but also for people um, in general and society in general, I would say. Hello. Um, can science be a tool for diplomacy? Yes, it, it is. Um, um, so much of what is happening right now. Um, in international um, in, in, in international diplomacy, you can think of the trade wars between the U.S. and China, for example. Um, you can think of the Arctic um, 
the Arctic, uh, the Arctic situation, or even uh, more recently, the whole problem between the Ukraine or Ukraine and, and uh, Russia. So many of those international conflicts really involve science and technology. Um, but also our everyday lives are simply full of science and technology, especially in the digital age. So, um, so scientific knowledge is very much in demand and scientists very often become science diplomats, whether or not they want to. They're kind of drawn into politics, whether or not they want to. They're trained to not be politicians and to say when something becomes po political, leave me out of it. But because science and technology take up such an enormous uh, part of our everyday lives, they are drawn into it, whether or not they want to be. Um, a couple of years ago, for example, the German government came out with a, with a new strategy paper in which they, um, they elevate, they simply elevate science diplomacy to be a full-blown part of German foreign policy. And it, that's, that is not so strange when you think of Germany with its world-famous research societies such as the Max Planck or the Helmholtz, for example. Um, you can also think back to uh, the Cold War. A lot of science diplomacy was going on then. I have been involved in a number of um, open world conferences that we have organized in honor of Danish physicist Niels Bohr and his open letter to the UN in 1950 at, at the University of Copenhagen, for example. In that letter, Niels Bohr said it was imperative to have openness after the Second World War about atomic energy that should be shared with, with Russians and among scientists and that scientists had, that the world of science is open anyhow um, and, and, uh, and very global and international. So that could be utilized now. Um, so there are people today that compare the situation in Ukraine uh, and Russia now with the Cold War. Do we have a new Cold War, they ask. And um, um, so, and, and the, the last thing I want to mention here is also we need science and technology to do something about climate change uh, today. So it's extremely important that scientists learn how to communicate with the public and with the policymakers, I think. Do you think uh, that the scientists are also responsible in uh, facilitating science education and accessibility uh, for general public? To a certain extent, they are, but it's also very much a political thing. And, um, you know, the, the question is sometimes also who should actually do the dissemination. The, I talked about Article 15 to that part of Article 15 that concerns the importance of dissemination so that people understand what's going on in the world of science. Who should do that? Should it be um, should it be journalists, good science journalists, or should it be scientists themselves? Uh, and I think, um, for example, it would be a good idea to think this into funding, that if you apply for funding for a particular project, which we do all the time, of course, then, then applying for a particular part of that funding um, should concern um, dissemination. So yes, scientists have to be better communicators. I think this ought to be part of science education, but this is by and large a political issue. There has to be, you know, money has to be set aside for this and for realizing how important, um, how important it is to be able to communicate with the public. 
And it's it's important for scientists also to do that, I think, for, for different reasons, if they themselves do the dissemination, because nobody can get across to the public the kind of excitement that there is in scientific research. Uh, science uh, journalists cannot do that. Scientists themselves have to do that. And they also have to be able to answer questions from the public. And then... If more and more um, uh, it's, it's considered a democratic right for the general public to participate in science policymaking, then it is extremely important for scientists to be able to get access to the public and to tell them why the kind of science they do is important and ought to be funded. So it's a two-way communication street, I think. Would you say that the right to science is a universal right? Or... Let's talk about uh, human rights in general. Are they universal or are they effectively implemented? Are they useful for all? Um, my my um, I, my my sense is that yes, all human rights are universal. This is built into into the whole uh, human rights system. And anything else, in my opinion, would open up to discrimination and ghettoization, different treatments where um, certain groups may be excluded, uh, where people may talk about only civil and political rights or only economic, social and cultural rights and recognize them as real human rights. Um, universality simply means that human beings are endowed with equal human rights because they are human wherever they live, whoever they are, regardless of who they are or any other particular characteristics, characteristics, what they believe in, how they look and so on. So universality is, is, a, is a very important part of the human rights, um, of the human rights regime. And, and that very universality, I think, provides, holds, can, can help hold uh, governments accountable. Uh, when the Universal Declaration was uh, released, it provided a guideline for the future and it forced everyone to acknowledge that during the Second World War, human rights had been violated on a massive, massive scale. Um, but with a standard for what is a human right, then governments can be held accountable for their actions. There's power in naming an injustice. There's power to in pointing to a precedent. Uh, and that makes the Universal Declaration and other human rights de documents so important, I think. And all kinds of criticisms have been voiced. But this year, we celebrate the 75th anniversary in December of the Universal Declaration. So we also have now 75 years worth of legal cases, legal material to work with. And this, this puts um, some weight into this. Who would have thought so when the Universal Declaration was first released? Wow. So this has been a real, a really interesting and fascinating discussion and certainly a very interesting read. Um, what are you current, currently working on? Um, two issues. Um, I have a book coming out later in 2023 on scientific freedom. It's a book that I've written together with three younger scholars, and the title is going to be Scientific Freedom, the Heart of the Right to Science. It will be published by Roman and Littlefield. Um, and it's, it kind of takes the view from the scientific community itself, uh, which I think needs to be told. A lot of scholars today are, are mainly interested in citizen science, in the dangers of dual use and the anticipation of bad science. So th their focus is kind of on the rights of the public. 
which are obviously very, very important. I'm not saying they aren't. But I just think that we should remember that without inspiration and input from fellow scientists, from others around the world, individual scientists and their research groups are not going to have any of those original ideas that lead to progress short or long term. So without scientific freedom, there's not going to be any pursuit of ideas. There's going to be nothing to disseminate and therefore nothing for the public to benefit from and share. So scientific freedom is one topic. The other one I want to mention is that I'm very interested in the topic of science-related populism, how we, how we become better at communicating, we now meaning the, uh, the, science, the scientific scholarly community, how we become better at communicating with um, with the public as a whole. I think it's extremely important, and it is one of the major science-related populism is one of the major obstacles to climate change. Uh, important, important research going on right now. Great. I'm looking forward to reading on these as well. Uh, Helle, thank you very much. You're welcome.